This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. One thing that I love asking guests on the show is what advice they would give to an up-and-coming designer. When I talked with Hannah Kulin, I asked her what's the best advice she's been given about design. Data is great, but it doesn't tell you the reason why. So listen to your gut feeling is one of the best advices. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. No other email service provider is better when it comes to both functionality as well as customer service. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it super easy for you to not only find the domain name that you're looking for, but get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. So I want to announce the winners of our two giveaways. If you're a member for the past few weeks, we've had two giveaways going. One is for tickets to Revolve Conference 2016 and the second giveaway was a book giveaway of our Rip the Resume by Torin Ellis, who was our October AMA guest. So the winners of the Revolve Conference 2016 tickets are Ariana Nicole, Domingo Maronta, hope I said that right, and Lacey Melissa Irvin. And for the Rip the Resume book giveaway, the winners there are Margie and Lonnie Shepard. Thanks again for everyone that entered both of these giveaways. I've already contacted all of the winners, so hopefully um, you should be getting your gifts, your prizes, I should say, very, very soon. Again, thanks to everyone that participated in this giveaway. I really like doing these kinds of giveaways, so um, if there are more of these that you want to see in the future, please let me know. We've got a new iTunes review here. This comes from Lacey Jordan via So Lacey Like. Uh, it's a pretty long review, but it's titled One of the Best Podcasts, and here it goes. Love, love, love this podcast. I'm no stranger to the podcast world, and honestly, most design podcasts are not diverse. Thank you, Maurice, for creating a space that highlights black creatives and supports black talent. I think it would be a cool idea to have episodes where you interview creatives who are more in the beginning stages of their careers. I think that perspective of people who are up and coming could lead to interesting conversation and also connect more seasoned designers who may be looking for mentees and vice versa. Keep producing great content. I've learned about so many designers because of it. That's actually a really, really good idea. Well, first, I want to thank you so much for that review, Lacey. That was a really great review. I really would like to interview more up-and-coming designers. And I'll tell you what ends up happening, because I have a pretty big prospect list of people, right? So sometimes people will recommend themselves. Sometimes I go to that list. So there's usually no shortage of folks for me to choose from for the show. Oftentimes, and I would say this happens maybe 9 out of 10 times, when I talk to someone who is quote-unquote an up-and-coming designer, they always say no because they feel like they should be further along in order for me to interview them, which is weird. I've, I've often had people that I maybe have reached out to a few years ago 
people have come back to me now, you know, two or three years later that say, hey, now I'm more accomplished. I want to be on the show. Well, I wanted to talk to you back then to give that perspective, not your perspective now. So that is a really good idea. I'm going to really try to start doing that more in 2017. I have some goals for the show in general that I want to do. One of them is, like you said, to talk to more kind of up and coming designers. I want to do more international guests. I think I kind of slacked off on that a little bit at the latter half of this year. But no, um, again, thank you for the review. Really great feedback. Thank you so much, Lacey. I appreciate it. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still holding steady at 39 patrons for a combined total of $267 a month. Again, thanks for everyone that's pledged your support and your appreciation for the show. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you enjoy the guests that we have on the show, or if you've gotten any value from listening, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get some great perks like early access to future episodes, our free Revision Path goodies. We also have a patrons-only podcast. Uh, so if you are a patron, you get really up to the up-to-date behind-the-scenes information on stuff as it happens. So uh, that's something that you should check out as well. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash revision path. Pledge level started just $1 a month. So it's a really great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's get on to this week's interview. I'm talking with Larry King, assistant professor of design at Kent State University and creative director at Glyphic Studios. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Larry King, and I'm an assistant professor of design at Kent State University, and I also am the creative director of our student staff design studio, Glyphic Studio. Um, I'm also the internship coordinator for the program, so I deal with all of the students within the School of BCD at some point as they start to transition into their careers. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you get started with uh, Kent State? I know, you know, I looked your LinkedIn profile. I know that's where you went to get one of your master's degrees. Right. I was previously teaching at Northwestern State University in Louisiana, which is also my alma mater and where I earned my first master's degree and felt that there was something missing from my education. There was a side of design that I wasn't yet exposed to. And being in sort of rural America, rural Louisiana, there was just no really no exposure to that. So my partner at the time and I decided to find a new school. And he was looking for a program as well in textiles um, and uh, craft. And so we found Kent State for the textiles program, actually, and then started to look at the design program as well. They had an amazing research-based MFA program. So we came for a visit once, we applied, then we moved up here two months later and started school. <laughs> and that's how we ended up in Ohio. What has the time been like so far at Kent State? I mean, has it been a, a big transition going from student to faculty? Well, so it was actually kind of an interesting transition because I went from faculty to student to faculty again. Um, oh, okay. So financially, you can imagine it was kind of a tough transition. What I learned and what I was exposed to was, you know, it was beyond what I would ever dream of. I, I had no idea that there was so much to be taught still. You know, with regards to design process, design thinking, design research, and then the applications of all of those things. Those are all things that I was exposed to here at Kent State. And I know part of what you said is that you're the creative director for Glyphic mm -hmm. Studio. Talk a little bit about what that is and what that entails. So Glyphic Studio is a 41-year-old design studio that was um, 
began within the school, and it was um, the first of its kind, um, is what I've heard this whole time. The first studio that was designed to allow undergraduate students the experience of working with clients while they were still earning their degrees. So these students worked on projects that had actual budgets and deadlines and things like that and got that kind of design business experience while they were at school. Over the years, more of those kinds of programs have cropped up. And, and so we have shifted our model to suit the needs of the current student body. So right now we're sort of a creative hub for advanced students in the program. We still do client-based work, but more so it's an opportunity for students to explore areas of design and things that are adjacent to design that they have interest in all within a soft structure of you know their educational experience. So my job is really to guide the students on their journeys in there, to provide them with client work when we have it, and then to really facilitate these wonderful cooperative, collaborative learning experiences. And what do the students, I mean, aside from just that experience of of being able to really work while learning, what are they getting out of it? Most of the time, the students focus on their portfolio, you know, incorporating actual items as opposed to a lot of the hypothetical problems that they have in the typical classroom experience. So they're getting projects that you actually see in the world. A lot of them are looking to supplement their portfolios with projects and areas that maybe the program doesn't necessarily focus on. For instance, we don't really have a focus in web design, but we have lots of students through Glyphics who get to work on web design projects, things like experiential design and um, interactive design and things like that. Uh, so they're learning things in the classroom that they then get to apply in their own, using their own process at Glyphics. Uh, so they get the experience of working with clients and that sort of business side of things. They get the portfolio pieces. But I think that even more than that, they get the experience of working with other creative people, which can sometimes be a bad experience. We all know this, especially like in a school setting. Yeah. So they get a, a more real version of that, I think, when they have projects that have these real deadlines and real budgets and real investors and things like that that they have to answer to. That's pretty cool. I wish that I would have – I mean, I didn't go to design school, but from what I hear from other design students and even from people that I've had on the show – they weren't able to get that kind of real-world type of work experience mm -hmm. until after they left school. And so I usually ask them, do you feel like the school really prepared you for the working world? Based on this model that's going on at Kent State, it sounds like the students come out really prepared and knowing what they need to do to be you know, effective designers in the industry. One of the really great things about my job as internship coordinator is that when I'm talking to these people who provide – not only provide internships, but also oftentimes provide employment for our students is how prepared they are for those jobs. We give them sort of a look at all areas of the industry or as many of them as we can. And so they go out into the workforce prepared with maybe a little bit more knowledge than they would be otherwise. And certainly students who go through Glyphics have more of a grasp on how to work within the structure of a typical studio or agency. But yeah, that's a comment we get a lot. You know, our students are really prepared for those opportunities. And, and so that that's great that I get to hear, you know, firsthand that comment from our employers and our internship providers, because then I can apply it to my classroom setting. You know, if there's a change that needs to happen, if our students need to know something new, I can start implementing that through Glyphics and through the other courses that I teach pretty immediately. That's awesome. That's a really, really good model to follow.
so based on what you've heard, then I guess, you know, along with that comment about the students really being prepared, what do you think that students really kind of want out of the design industry? I know that being a practitioner, being an, an educator within it is one thing, but they're entering into it pretty, pretty new and pretty fresh. What do they want to see from the design industry that maybe is not happening right now? You know, I think that from the conversations I've had with students who've moved into the industry, you know, either freelance or with their own studios or working at a, an agency, I, I think something I do hear sort of consistently is that students are looking for the opportunity to continue that exploration. Um, they grow accustomed to that in the education, in the academic setting. You know, if they want to learn something, they kind of have the time and, and the space to explore that. And I think that students are not looking for you know, sort of a job that's really mundane and they have to do the same thing over and over and over until they retire. I think they're looking for experiences that can be expanded and that can shift over time. And I think that's just indicative of that, of this generation of people who, you know, maybe don't work a job for, you know, 40 years and then retire anymore. We're looking at different opportunities all the time. I think that students are looking for a way to be vocal about things that they care about. So finding opportunities to work in design that are also aligned with their beliefs and their things that they're charged with to speak on. I think that we're seeing more and more of that because people are really looking for those opportunities or making those opportunities for themselves. What made you want to become a design educator? I have wanted to teach since I was in school. And I think that might be because growing up as a poor black kid in Louisiana, my teachers were the people that I admired the most. They were the ones that instilled in me the idea that you could care about someone that wasn't a part of your family, that wasn't, you know, directly related to you or something, but, but you had this really wonderful interaction with one another on a daily basis. So I thought teaching was really cool, you know, from that perspective. And then as I got older, I realized that, you know, this is something that I could really maybe be good at. And then I sort of fell into it very quickly and, and out of necessity. The previous university I was at had sort of this exodus of faculty all at once right as I was graduating. So I only had my MA degree, but they were, they, they asked me if I would be willing to come on board to teach the design curriculum there. And I thought, sure, this is exactly what I wanted. It wasn't what I thought I would get right away, but okay. Mm -hmm. So the, the three years I spent there teaching were, Years that I had to learn more quickly than I ever have before, um, not only learning how to teach and the curriculum that I was teaching, but also how to work within the political structure of a university and all that sort of, you know, stuff that I'd never even thought about before. That experience was not a bad one, but it certainly did wear on me after a while. And that contributed to this idea that I needed to learn more as well. So then after I came to Kent State, I kind of had thought to myself, I don't think I want to teach right now. I think I want to work within an industry or work within the industry or work in an agency instead. And that was kind of my goal. And after the first semester of school here, they have a class called college teaching and you learn how to teach and you learn all of these little nuances of education specific to design education. And the professor I had, Professor Jerry Callback, was such an inspiration and so motivational and so empathetic that it was it was just a few weeks into the semester when I realized I have to do this again. I have to teach. 
and so, you know, I was able to sort of position myself throughout my years here and then applied for this position uh, directly after graduating. Um, I think it was kind of, it was destiny, you know, like it was, I feel like I was meant to have this position. I was meant to do this job and um, I keep finding my way back to it. Now you kind of have a, a unique vantage point where you're at now in, in design education. Where do you see the field in general as it relates to, I guess, you know, a number of different things about diversity, about the future of design education? Where do you see things going? I think that more than anything, and, and this is true for our program, and I, and I suspect true for many others, that we're starting to listen to students more so than, you know, our provosts and uh, the people in power at the university. We're starting to realize that they know what they want to learn. They know the experience that they want to have. And if we can adapt our program to meet that, these students are going to be revolutionary. They're going to know things that we never thought we would know, and they're going to take this industry into corners of the earth that we never really thought about. I think if we listen to them, I think that they will guide us into a really amazing place as far as design education and how it prepares them for those experiences. You know, specifically as we start to look more at interactivity and integrating all of these experiences and making platforms that suit those needs and, and allowing them to explore these these new ideas. I think that, you know, most importantly, we can't be so rigid a program as to deny them all of those things that they have intuition about. You know, we have to be listeners as well. So you're in, in Kent, Ohio, right. teaching at Kent State. What is the design scene like? Is there a design scene? Yeah, in Kent? I think there's a design scene. You know, Kent's a small place. It's pretty trendy. There's lots of young people here with influence. We have a few design firms that were started by uh, people who came up from our program. And, you know, so they're nearby and they have an impact on their communities. There's just one that, that just recently opened up downtown near where we work. And so it's really inspirational to me to see that happening because back home, that's just not a thing that, you know, there wasn't that same kind of appreciation for design and for creative profession that would warrant or, or, you know, give cause to someone starting their own agency or studio. The student community here is pretty strong, and we're going through some issues right now just on campus with our building and facilities and, and the way that our physical location is structured. But the students always find a way to have that community with themselves. And that's something that we didn't have back home. And now when you say back home, you mean back, back in, in Louisiana. Back in Louisiana, yeah. Let's go back there for a little bit. Talk to me about what it was like for you growing up there. I grew up, you know, like I said, a poor black kid in Leesville, Louisiana, which is in North Louisiana, very far from the the lights and the, the fun of like a place like New Orleans or even Baton Rouge. It's a very, very small town. And I grew up in a single parent family. So there were a lot of things that I was probably naive to just growing up. But I was always creative. I was always drawing and painting and things like that. And so my mother nurtured that in me because she also was a creative person. But doing things like finding a path into my creative education, those are things that I'm still kind of surprised ever happened because they just weren't things I was exposed to. I remember not really knowing what college was, you know, halfway through high school and all my friends were preparing for it and taking tests and things and SATs and, and such. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> 
And once I recognized that that was like a way out for me, you know, I kind of latched onto it. And then, you know, being what felt like the only gay kid in town, I spent a lot of time alone drawing and observing art and things like that. So, yeah. <laughs> and so you kind of just got that spark, I guess. You always had the creative spark. Right. Like you said, you didn't really... I didn't know that it could know be a that job. It was something I didn't know that it could that it was a thing that people studied. You know, I didn't know that it had any implication in my everyday life when we look at things like design and, and that we're surrounded by this stuff. I just knew that I enjoyed it. I got into my undergraduate program for art and kind of had heard about design, but really learned about what it was while I was in school. And then that's kind of how I got onto that path. So this is going to be kind of a loaded question, and, and forgive me if, if it comes off as anything other than being just completely sincere, right. but I wanted to know, what is it like for you being a black gay man in the design industry? It's interesting. <laughs> to be completely honest, it's something I've never been asked that, and I don't find myself talking about it very often. Um, I, I can't even say that I find myself thinking about it very often because it is in a lot of ways, so singular, you know, it's, it's sort of like this passing thought that I have on occasion. I'm trying so hard to be just a designer and just a forward thinker and all of these things and an educator that that thought sort of slips past on occasion, you know, recognizing that I'm kind of alone when it comes to those things, certainly within this university, but even in this area, I don't know any other gay black design professionals. So I guess in some ways, it, it, it feels a little lonely. I feel like if there are perspectives specific to that part of my identity, I haven't even recognized them yet. But I would love to, to figure out how they might influence what I do and how I do it. I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> no, that, that answers the question. I mean, I think that's that's a, a fair assessment. I mean, it's it's honestly, and I mean, this might be a weird analogy, but certainly like when I first started revision path and i just reached out to black designers mm -hmm. i did get a lot of pushback from people that were just like i'm just trying to be a designer i'm not trying to think about these other parts of my identity that might influence or or color or or shift the perception about who i am or what my work is about i get what you're saying there i understand that i think there's power in recognizing that aspect of my identity i think that knowing that about myself can give me a way to affect those communities that are like me or that are affected by things that um, that I understand. As a designer and as someone who wants to help solve problems, having that perspective can be really, really good to have. It's not just something I have to go and learn about. It's something that I live. So I, you know, I think that part of what I intend to do, you know, for the next stretch of time is to figure out what it is that I can bring to the table in order to assist in those communities. Where do you kind of see diversity in the design community today? Or do you see that diversity? It's hard to say. Within the walls of my own school, you know, that diversity is, is really on a low level. And, 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 you know, I recognize where I am. I'm in Northeast Ohio. There's not a great deal of diversity here. So it's kind of hard to say this represents, you know, the whole but I think that when we look at design and publications and design, you know, as far as award-winning things and these agencies and studios that get attention and things like that, I think there is a serious lack of diversity. I think part of the reason why 
I, as a young person, as you know, even as an undergraduate, didn't quite comprehend that this could be a career for me is because I didn't see myself reflected in it. And I think that has an impact on, on what we strive for. How do you think we can increase that diversity if we kind of have that challenge with identity? I think one of the biggest things that we can do is by reaching out to, and this is something that we specifically are looking to do, is reaching out to schools that have people who are in disadvantaged areas um, who don't even know that this is a thing they can do. You know, a lot of the students that we have in our program come from the same kinds of schools, you know, and, and we sort of reach out to those schools on a regular basis and so forth. But there are inner city schools up in Cleveland that we've never entered and, you know, and, and things like that. So so exposing students younger to this industry, I think, is the way to go. A lot of us sort of fall into it. But I think that there's so much untapped talent in these areas that we have to start seeking out. I think that's certainly one way that we can do it. I think that, again, by seeing themselves reflected in the people who lead the industry, these students can start to see that this is an opportunity for them as well. I recently, last year actually, was working with a client who works with high schools, and a lot of the high school students are people of color. And um, we worked out a way to host them at Glyphic Studio so that they could assist us with this design project. It was a website that we were building. So we brought them into the studio so they could assist us. You know, this was just a four, three-hour day. Uh, we gave them lunch, and we had these, you know, it was maybe 20 students. I think half of them were people of color and had never been exposed to design or any of the things that we do. The last I heard, they were still talking about this experience. Those students who were, you know, freshmen, sophomores in high school were still talking about this three hours that we gave them to teach them how to build a website, you know, or teach them how to design a website, rather. And that's because that exposure had never happened for them before. They, they'd never seen that. And students who had no interest in it previously are suddenly like, whoa, this is kind of cool. And I might be kind of good at this. I might want to learn more about this. We have to facilitate those kinds of opportunities for them, and we have to do so with our own with our own energy. I mean, we can't you know wait for those things to just kind of happen magically on their own. We have to go into these schools and these communities and, and do it ourselves. What's something important that you know now that you didn't really learn in school, like based on I guess your your actual work experience? What's something that you've picked up? Doesn't have to necessarily be a like a hard design right. skill or anything like that, but just in general, like a life skill, what's something that you picked up? I think that more than anything, and this actually was something I started to learn in my my second graduate degree, was learning that saying no to something isn't being rude, it's not being selfish, it's not being mean to someone, but that one of my professors, you know, he, he kept saying to us that no one is going to give you your time you know, people will take your time away from you. They will ask for five minutes here and there, and, and that time builds up, and you have to make sure that, A, you have time to recharge yourself, B, that you have time to do the things that you're passionate about, and see that you, you know, appropriately allot time for the things that matter in your life. I am one of those people that likes to please everybody, you know, and, and if you ask me to give you two or three hours out of my day, I will likely do that, and, and I've had to learn that, there are other things that I need to be able to do, and I can't do everything. <laughs> and I hate that lesson, but it's reality. Yeah. And, and so that's definitely one of the things that I've learned over the past few years. 
speaking of that, I mean, I also came from a, a small town in the south in Alabama called Selma, and I don't, yeah, I don't live far from it. I mean, I'm in Atlanta, so mm-hmm. it's just one state over. But you know, I I often think about kind of what compromises I might have had to get where I am now, and for me, one of the biggest ones also was kind of just leaving home, you right. know, because when you grow up in the south, and especially in a in a small town and a small family. It's a very insular type of feeling. You don't really know what else is out there beyond those four walls. What's the biggest compromise that you've had to make to get where you are today? Well, firstly, I I definitely agree with you in that, you know, I came from a a situation where looking outside of Leesville, Louisiana was just not really an option. You know, my university is only an hour away from my hometown, and that was – you know, that seemed like an impossibility for a long time. So moving all the way to Ohio was a, a, a big risk that I took, but it was one that I felt so strongly about. And I felt that it was, you know, what was meant to happen. I think the biggest sacrifice or the biggest compromise has just been finding some security in the unknown, recognizing that risks will bring rewards if you take the right ones. I have a tattoo that says, it's from a Santa Gold song. It says, I can say, I hope it will be worth what I give up. And and I look at that all the time because, you know, the biggest changes in my life have been reflected in that, in those words. It's like, I'm going to give up this, you know, well-paying job here in Natchitoches, Louisiana to go back to school. That doesn't sound logical, but it feels right. And, and that's sort of the way that I've moved through a lot of these big decisions, um, certainly through my education. Are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think for a long time, I didn't really have a plan. Um, I think even now, you know, I have a loose plan. I kind of, um, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, a sort of a flowy kind of person, but I think that opportunities that are meant for me present themselves in such a way that it's, you know, undeniable. And so for me, I just knew that I would be doing something creative at this point. But for, you know, like a long time, 32 seemed so far away. And, and how could I possibly plan for that? And yeah. here I am. And, you know, it, it feels right. It feels correct. <laughs> what keeps you motivated? To go back to what you mentioned earlier, you said that you're still waking up and stuff. I, I, I'm a 5 a.m. kind of person. Um, okay. I'm definitely like inspired by the idea of a new day and the sunrise and all that sort of glittery stuff because I'm kind of uh, disgustingly optimistic about most things. My, my hobbies keep me motivated. I paint. And so when I'm not designing, um, I build furniture and things like that. And, and just like the idea of creating something really keeps me moving forward. I, I just, I like to be involved whenever possible. I like to give a helping hand whenever I can. So seeing opportunities, you know, come up here and there and, and those sorts of things really keep me moving forward. You know, I, I wake up and I think what's going to happen today? What's going to be, you know, what am I going to be pulled into that could potentially, you know, change mine or someone else's life? And not to say that I think on that deep of a level all the time, but, but certainly it's kind of just ingrained in me to wake up and, and present myself to the day and, and, and say, you know, sort of to the universe, what do you want me to do? That's pretty much the way that I think about all situations. Let's go a little further down that, that design road. So every creative person has a process of some sort. How do you approach a new project, whether it's like furniture that you're building, you said you paint, you sew, mm. 
what's your process like? With most things, and probably less less so painting because that can really be more therapeutic than anything, I sort of approach it based on the need and assessing what that need actually is. And, and so that kind of speaks to the same design process that we teach here. You know, I look at what the problem is and what the best solution might be, which seems pretty obvious, but that's not always the case with a designer or with any person trying to solve a problem. Sometimes they ignore the problem. So I look at, I look at what the needs are. And um, so if I'm building a piece of furniture, I look at, you know, structurally what the needs are and then sort of work my way out from there. So, you know, looking at the center of the thing, when it comes to design and specifically with design that I am assigning to my students, I look at the need of the client. I look at the, the problems and what the need of the solution might be and then work my way backwards. So, you know, how might we solve this problem? What are the parameters? What needs to be included in that solution? Things like that. And then who the solution matters to, I think, is also very important and how it will affect them. And all of that sort of that thought process kind of all happens at once when it's, you know, just sort of me doing something or solving a problem. One of the great things with, you know, working with students is you get to hear that whole process out loud. You get to hear them talk about it and work their ways through it. How would you describe your personal design style? I mean, what are some of your influences? So Dieter Rams, Dieter Rams, I'm never sure how to pronounce his last name, um, is, <laughs> is a huge influence to me. I love the sophisticated cleanliness of his design. My design tends to have an optimism about it, and, and it's kind of hard to describe that. But for me, color is very important, and I'd love to find color combinations that are new or innovative or thought-provoking. And, and so a lot of my design is based heavily in how it's interpreted through color. I love mid-century design. I mean, like, who doesn't, you know, like I say that as if it's something special. But mid-century is really something I identify with because of the sort of inherent optimism and cleanliness of everything then. You know, and, and then making sure that whatever the solution is, that my style adapts to that when necessary. You know, I don't try to apply the same template to everything. And, and learning new stuff, you know, like I think that, you know, if you were to pair flat design with mid-century design, that would probably be very close to where I like to I like to rest my head. So if if there's any space in the world that you could make a design for, where would it be and what would you make? Wow. <laughs> That's a big question. I guess, you know, I don't I'm not sure if this will answer the question the way that you anticipated or not. But I think that something that's been on my mind a lot in a space per se, I feel that there is a generation of people, you know, around my mother's age who have been left behind when it comes to the advancements of technology and the processes by which our country and, and largely the world work. Things are, you know, completed online and there are, there's this immediacy of everything. And, and you know, there are these assumptions about things that we as people in 2016 are able to do and comprehend. And I feel that there are people who have been left out of that and people who don't know how to catch up to it. So if that's my space, I think that the design that I would create would be some way to get them on track. People who are resistant to learning about things like computers and smartphones and stuff like that. People who maybe feel ashamed that they didn't pick up on those things as they were being produced. People who didn't have the opportunity to learn those things. I would love to create some method 
an educational system, something that could get those people caught back up. Because for a lot of them, it can be life or death. My mother, for instance, who is sort of this landlocked woman who has low reading comprehension and views the world through her television and largely through you know, Fox News, is on food stamps and can't really apply for them without my help in doing so online. You know, she needs government assistance for certain things, you know, with her home and so forth. There was a flood recently and she needed help and she didn't know how to get it because for her, you know, she's got the phone and she's got a phone book and that's really all she knows. But if I were able to get her on board, um, she might be able to better herself and see that there's more of the world to be offered to her. I've heard similar stories from other people. I wanted to tackle this problem as a thesis, um, but it was just, it's, t it's too big. You know, even just doing research into it, I feel would take significantly longer than I had you know, time for. So that's something that's in the back of my head. Yeah. My mom and my grandmother are like that too. Like it's, it's hard to get them up to speed. Like I just really got my mom to using a cell phone mm -hmm. maybe within the past year or so. Yeah. yeah. And, and we only recently, I'd say maybe just a few months ago really started texting on a regular basis mm -hmm. which i think she prefer well i don't know if i want to say she prefers it but she certainly can keep in touch with me quicker that way as opposed to picking up the phone and calling when i might be in the middle of something right. and it might take me a while to get back to her she can text me and then i can still have a conversation with her while still doing mm -hmm. whatever it is i'm doing you know so right right yeah it's you know and it's not to say that this is for my convenience as you know a millennial who you know, doesn't want to call his mother all the time, um, <laughs> but, but more so, you know, like, I, like the things I mentioned, like when she needs assistance, when she needs aid, when she needs to keep up with or perhaps change her view of the world by talking with other people like her, she doesn't really have those options. So a lot of what she comprehends about the world, I think, could be benefited if she was able to connect to it in the way that most other people do. And she just can't. Yeah. Who are some of the mentors or people that have really helped you out along the way? For sure, Ken Visaki O'Grady, who's actually a colleague now and was uh, an instructor of mine in the MFA program. He has been a massive influence on the way that I see design and the way that I see myself and my future in this profession. He's just really wise and really straightforward about things in a way that I hadn't really been exposed to before. There was also another instructor I had back in my other university, Tony Watkins, who was really the first designer I met. Um, I had another design instructor, but not one who had the sort of aesthetic or the exposure to the side of design that I was really interested in. And he was a, a great influence. I mean, he's actually the one who got me thinking about going back to graduate school. And, and there have been lots of others. I mean, honestly, the faculty here have been very inspirational to me just because they all come from such diverse backgrounds and different areas of, of expertise. So working with some of them through my MFA program, but now working beside them or next to them in this program has been really wonderful. And then I'm inspired by, you know, artists and, and like people like Robert Rauschenberg and, and things like that as well. Dieter Rams, his ideas, his 10 rules of design have kind of led the way that I think about it. Is there anything in particular that you're really excited about at the moment? I'm currently doing a lot of work for LifeWater International, which is okay. uh, an organization that works to 
teach people in developing countries about water and sanitation and hygiene. And so they have this curriculum developed called WASH, and they go into these, these communities and teach them all they need to know about how to maintain their clean water, how to source it, how to prevent the spread of disease and things like that, you know, how to properly build structures for their livelihood, um, things like latrines and, and so forth. And this curriculum was supplemented by a lot of crudely drawn illustrations for a long time. And they approached through another design agency, Rule 29, who had a connection with Ken here on our campus. They wanted to find someone who could help them streamline their curriculum or, or better their curriculum. So they came to us as a graduate group of students under the guidance of Ken Vasaki O'Grady with the idea that they could develop images specific to each of these locations so that they could better teach them the lessons that they wanted to teach. And as a class, we, and I think we were a group of six or seven people at the time, we did a lot of research and went through the design process that we were learning at the time and discovered that we could use the universal design aesthetics, universal design um, system to teach the same curriculum to all of these different people using illustrations that use it universal style, which would cut down on the costs to produce all of these things. It would cut down on the time it would take to produce them all and really be more useful to them. So through the research, we had to define what the commonalities between all of these communities were and the way that they live and the way that they were currently using water and, and their current hygiene practices and things like that. We found the common denominator for those, and then we started to apply design to that. We restructured the curriculum to make it a little more streamlined. We took out some lessons. We implemented new lessons and things like that. You know, And all of this was approved by LifeWater as we went forward. And then came the part, the time to actually design these illustrations. Um, and that was my portion of the project. So I started with these illustrations using the universal style, things like guides to wash hands and diagrams of latrines and, you know, hand washing systems and things like that. And then that moved into an illustrated storytelling component for the curriculum, which was really important. You know, showing these communities people doing the things that they're learning was really important to this, to the lessons. And so that was almost four years ago that we did that. We were featured in print magazine last year for this work, and I've continued the work as a freelance project. They have recently moved into Cambodia, and they needed some different images, and they found that they could afford to print colored images for the audiences in Cambodia. So I'm currently producing colored versions of all of the uh, illustrations. And it's been a wonderful working relationship. It's all done digitally. You know, we communicate via email and Dropbox and stuff. And so, you know, every few months they'll give me an update or they'll say, hey, we need these two or three more images. It's been wonderful. And they are starting to see these really great results with that work. And they just sent me images of people, you know, with these posters hanging up in their homes and being proud of the changes that they've made in order to better themselves and their communities. It's really wonderful. I made a presentation at the ninth annual Design Principles and Practices Conference in Chicago a couple of years ago. And I'm looking to make another presentation with some new information at the next conference, the 11th conference next year. That's awesome. I know that, you know, a lot of nonprofits really could use that type of design, love and design work. And I think it's really great that you're able to do that and also see 
how it's helping further their mission. I think it kind of just scratches that itch that most designers have to see their work being used, you know, to go towards such bigger and loftier goals. Right. Design for good is something that sort of really stuck with me. The class that I just mentioned made a presentation to our local AIGA chapter several years ago that was on the topic of design for good, and we included this information. And uh, seeing the other projects that were along the same lines was really inspirational. So I make that a part of what I'd like to do with Glyphic Studio, but what I also like to do in my personal work. This work specifically, you know, LifeWater is a faith-based organization. I'm not of that faith, but I don't see that as a barrier for me to work with them to do something that really is so important and so impactful to the lives of these people. It's just been a wonderful relationship to have and a really great opportunity that I that I keep saying yes to because it's it's wonderful to do work with them. Now, I know that it seems like a lot of the work that you've done, even just from from your interest as a kid to what you're doing now, it seems like you've always been in this this world and realm of design. But if you never went this path, what do you think you would do? What do you think you'd be? I would on? likely be in theater. I started in theater and with singing and, and performance um, in high school, well, in junior high, and then went through high school with that. Um, I actually went to Northwestern State University on a marching band scholarship because I was on the color guard. You know, so that was my little claim to fame in high school. I was the first guy on our color guard team. I loved it, very passionate about it. You know, there was like a dance element, but marching band in general was just this thing that I found a lot of creativity in. And then um, in college, I actually started my undergraduate in theater uh, with a double major, also in art, fine art, and um, dropped theater a few years later because it was a commitment that was so great. And I felt that I didn't have... I didn't want to take away from someone else who was more committed to it than I was at the time. Continued marching band all through school and then even did some some choral and, and uh, choral and opera work as faculty and then again here. So I'm always finding a way to perform still. And, and so that's something I still really enjoy. Yeah, if design hadn't sort of peaked in, I'd probably be still on that path right now. Do you think there might be a future opportunity for you to marry those two? Oh, types? absolutely. Um, I'm actually looking now. <laughs> right now I'm looking to see if um, Glyphic Studio can potentially do some work for our theater department, um, you know, because they do all these shows every year and they have to do graphics for them. And that's an opportunity that we might be able to, you know, partner with them on. Where do you see yourself in the next five years or so? What do you think you'll be working on? Well, um, our school is going through some transitions right now. We're about to get a new facility which is going to be really wonderful. I really see myself just kind of setting some serious goals for my portion of the program and, and getting our students to that next level, um, getting our program to the next level and, and assisting in that. You know, we're looking for things like national recognition and, and real impactful opportunities of change in our community. And I'm seeking out those kinds of opportunities now. So in the next five years, I hope you know, to be here doing even more of what I'm doing now and, and hopefully in a bigger way. All right. Well, Larry, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about the work that you're doing online? The best place to look is uh, LarryKing.com. It's uh, my personal site and, and it's a blog. So I lots of rambling thoughts there and also some updated work. They can also check out the Kent State University School of Visual Communication Design website at bcd.kent.edu. And there's also a link to the Glyphic Studio on that page. And then our Facebook page, uh, the Glyphics Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, 
I'm on there 24-7. So. All right. Sounds good. Well, Larry, thank you again so much for taking time out of your day for speaking with me, not just about the work that you're doing at Kent State, but how, you know, design kind of influences and informs a lot of the decisions that you make Absolutely. just in life in general. I think people are really going to get a lot out of this. So thank you again for uh, for taking time out. I appreciate thank you it. very much. Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Larry King and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Larry and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invested design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude might be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain names. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Band Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps us bump up in those rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show, just like I did with Lacey's. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and with the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.